Hi everybody, it's Steve Weir, Grace Point's Pastor of Arts and Communication, and I'm here to say welcome, or welcome back, to the Grace Point Podcast. At the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast via iTunes or on our YouTube channel. Feel free to check out our website for all the latest information about everything going on here at Grace Point. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step toward becoming a fully committed follower of Jesus Christ. Enjoy. So it is Resurrection Sunday, and this is the Sunday that we like to use a greeting that you have heard already several times this morning. I say, he is risen, and you say, he is risen Right, okay. Now, if you happen to be here, though, this morning, and you might be a skeptic. Maybe you're not convinced. You might have a different response when I say he is risen. Your response may be, how do we know? How do we know that? I mean, how do we know that this whole story was not invented to just, it's kind of a sentimental, wishful thinking to make us feel better? How do we know it wasn't invented for funerals so that we can feel better when we have to say goodbye to a loved one? I've had the experience this year of walking with several of you families who have had some some really excruciating losses. And it is, it does make us feel better when we can go to a funeral and say, you know what, Um, Jesus rose again. And so we believe that we will rise again and we will see our loved ones again in the future. That comforts us. But how do we know it's true? I mean, what if somebody just invented it? What what if, and this is the really dark idea, what if somebody just invented it to create an organization that can exploit people to try to get financial gain? How do we know that that is not true? Some of you may be those skeptics here this morning. Maybe you are visiting from out of town, you're with, with family members and you came, or maybe your, your neighbors bribed you to come and said, we'll buy you brunch, you know, afterwards or whatever. And so you're, maybe you're that skeptic and you're asking that question. And for the rest of us who are Christ followers, if, if that question was ever voiced, how would you answer? How would you answer that we can know that this is not invented but this is actually something that really happened. We're going to explore the answer to that question today. How, how do we know that Christ has risen? And we're going to find the answer in a very unexpected place. It actually turns out that we, the best evidence for us to believe that it actually happened is the people who did not believe that it happened when it happened. If you would take a Bible and turn with me to Luke chapter 24. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, there should be one on a seat close to you. And I believe the page number for Luke 24 is 980. If I'm wrong about that, somebody wave your hand at me. And I think it's 980 for Luke 24. Um, A lot of people regard the Bible as one of many holy books with a lot of spiritual ideas. And to that I say, yes, and it's much more. The the Bible actually is a a document of ancient history. 
Um, the Gospel of Luke that we're looking at here this morning, we're, we're looking at the very end of the Gospel of Luke today, but I want to take us back to the very beginning of the Gospel just to, to begin here. In Luke chapter 1, he introduces his Gospel this way. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So Luke is writing to a real person to substantiate their faith about the life of Jesus. And Luke, we find out in, in another book in the New Testament, was a doctor, as it turns out. We're talking about doctors here this morning. But Luke, as a first century doctor, he, of course, did not have all the technology that we have today. But he would have been uh, as much a scientist in his day, using all the knowledge and all of the resources available to him. He was somebody who had great attention to detail. I mean, he was after the truth. He was trying to help people. And so that's Luke in the first century. He's as scientific as you can be in a, in a pre-modern setting. And so what we have in the book of Luke is a historical document. Now, people who study ancient history, I don't do that as a, uh, as a living, but people who study ancient living are, are doing a discipline to, to try to ferret out what actually happened hundreds and sometimes thousands of years ago. And so I want us to read this morning this passage that we're going to read with that in mind, that this is a, this is a spiritual document, but it is also a historical document. So as a backdrop for the resurrection, I want us to rewind to Friday when a wealthy friend of Jesus asked for his body to be able to bury it. So we're actually going to start in chapter 23, verse 53. Then he took it down. It's talking about Joseph of Arimathea, Jesus' wealthy friend, took it down, the, the body of Jesus, and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. Okay, we should pause there and, and clarify because this that phrase may sound a little strange to us, a tomb where nobody has ever yet been laid. Well, of course not. It's, it's a tomb. I mean, for us, we don't reuse our tombs. But in the first century, they did reuse their tombs. And so we showed this last week for those of you who were here, a diagram of what a first century tomb would look like. This is a shared family tomb. So the body would be taken inside. It would be prepared for burial. It would be placed in one of these alcoves off to the side in anticipation that probably months later, maybe years later, another family member would pass away. They would also be brought into the same spot and put in a different alcove. And that was the first stage of burial. What would happen then is the body would be left there alone for months, probably around a year, until all of the body, uh, the, the flesh decomposed. Sorry to, to be graphic, but that's, that's what happens. So the flesh would decompose. And then around a year later, someone would come back from that family and they would gather up the bones that were left and they would put it in a box that looks a lot like this, only it would be made out of stone. It's just about this size. It's called an ossuary. And so the bones would be gathered up and placed in there, and, and that cycle was repeated. 
And it was, and so other family members, their bones would be gathered as well and put into a family ossuary. And the reason for this was just, it was very simple. It was a practical reason. It was because of efficiency of space. There's just not a lot of space to bury bodies, not nearly as much as we have um, in, there in the Middle East. And so the, the bones would be placed in that box, and that would be the second stage. And this is why we, we read about, when, when we talk about the burial of Jesus, we read about the fact that his body was treated with spices. This is why spices were so important, because somebody else was going to be coming into that shared tomb later, and if the body was not treated with spices, it's, it's honestly, it's just going to smell really bad. So that's why the spices were so crucial. So let's, let's read on. So this is why Luke points out this little detail that we might easily miss, but that's why he said Jesus was placed in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was really important that Jesus be in a tomb where nobody else is there because, and I'm giving it away a little bit here, but I mean, other people are going to be coming in. They're going to be looking for a body. We don't want to find any bodies in that tomb and be mistaken about whose body it is. So this is a tomb that hasn't yet been used. Jesus is the first. Reading on verse 54, it was the day of preparation. The Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid, and they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. Jewish people were very strict, were very strict, still are today, strict about observing the Sabbath. So when the Sabbath happens, you stop work no matter what, and and Jesus' body had not fully been prepared with these spices, but they rested with the anticipation of coming back And that's what brings us to chapter 24. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. So they found something they didn't expect to find. The stone rolled away. In fact, one of the other gospel accounts says that the women on their way to the tomb are like, what are we going to do about the stone? I mean, it was huge, heavy, we're not super strong. What, how are we going to get the stone out of the way? So they found that the stone is already out of the way. What they did not find in verse 3 was the body of the Lord Jesus. That's what they expected to find. We know they expected to find it because they brought these spices. I mean, if they were thinking that Jesus had been resurrected, there's no reason for them to bring spices. So they're perplexed by this, we find in verse 4. While they're, they're perplexed about this, it means at, they're at a loss. They're like, what in the world is going on here? Behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as the women were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he told you. While he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third and on the third day rise. Remember how he told you. See, apparently, these women didn't remember that Jesus had said that. Or if they remembered that he had said that, they they didn't believe it. Here's what he actually said in Luke. Chapter 9, when he was back in Galilee, he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. 
So these messengers, these ladies obviously didn't believe this, so God sends these messengers with a divine, I told you so, or he told you so. You, don't you remember he said this? There's something really powerful here with the word remember that we can't see in the English, so I want to point it out to you. It, it has to do with the word tomb. So to, we see the word tomb four times in the 12 verses that we're going to look at here this morning. And anytime you see a word repeated that many times, you want to pay attention to it because it's helping to unlock like what the author is trying to, to get us to. So we saw it already twice in verse 1. It was early dawn. They went to the tomb. Verse 2, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. The word tomb in Greek is menema. It's the word that we get our word monument from or mnemonic. If you're familiar with a mnemonic, that's a device, that's, that's some aid that we give to our memories to help us remember something. A mnemonic is a, a word or an idea that we attach to something else to try to help us remember it. And the word tomb in the Greek actually means a sign of remembrance. It's why we put gravestones for, up for people that we love because we need an aid of remembrance. We want something visible to remember this person that we can't see anymore. It's why we sometimes put up a monument, especially for, for a, a famous person, because we want an aid to, to not forget what that person has, has done. So we use gravestones and monuments to help us remember people who have died, to connect us to those memories. But the thing with Jesus is he didn't stay dead. And so we can't go to a lifeless monument or, or an ossuary. His bones are not in an ossuary because he's alive. And so the angels call us to remember him through his word that he spoke. We have living words to connect us to a living Savior. See, any, anyone else we lose in life, we need some kind of monument to aid us in their memory, not so with Jesus. We, we don't have any monument like that for him. All we have is, are his living words. Not all we have, that's what we have, which is awesome, because he is alive. It, it's really important that Jesus predicted his crucifixion and his resurrection, maybe especially so that he predicted his death. That, that's really important because he wanted us to, to be sure that we knew that this was not an accident that happened. I mean, it, it could look accidental when you look at the situation from a logical point of view. I mean, why would someone who is the most loving, kind person who came to heal people and teach people about God, why, how could he suddenly become an enemy of the state and be crucified with capital punishment. That doesn't make any logical sense. And it looks like maybe something went terribly wrong and it was a terrible mistake. And Jesus wants us to be sure we understand it was no mistake. This was all very intentional. It was his mission. It was why he came. And he came to solve the problem of sin. He came to die to solve the problem of sin. We, we don't like to talk about sin. We, we like to, to kind of minimize our sin and gloss over it and, and say it's not really that big a deal. But sin is a huge deal to God because God is holy. 
God is a perfect, just, has, has no stain on his record whatsoever. And so for us to have stains on our record, we cannot be in the presence of a holy God. And so God could leave us that way. He could leave us separated from himself because our sin has separated us. We sang about that earlier. But God is also love. And so God's love wants us to not be separated from him. The holiness pushes us apart. The love he wants to bring us together. And so the only way to solve this problem was to bring them together at the cross. The cross was the perfect spot where God could pour out his justice and the penalty for sin and the wrongs that we have done, but he poured it out all on a perfectly holy and sinful person, a sinless person who did not deserve that death, and he did that out of love. That's what motivated him. So Jesus wanted us to be very clear that that was no accident. That was all pre-planned. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it this way, For our sake, God the Father made God the Son to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. See, here's the problem with, with our sin. And I want to talk for a moment again to those of you who might be skeptics here today and just appeal to you. Wouldn't it be wonderful if the, the things that you have said wrong in your life, the things that you've done wrong that you know are wrong, that haunt you in, in the middle of the night, wouldn't it be nice if those things could be washed away, washed out of your memory, as it were? They, they can, but not by anything that you accomplish. And this is where we get frustrated because we try to try to make up somehow for the wrong that we have done. God says there's nothing. He is so perfectly holy. There's no way we can make up for our own sin. And so we are completely dependent on Jesus' sacrifice. And he says, he says, be free from the pressure of trying to do it yourself because Christ has already done it. And just receive what he's done as, as a free gift. So it was, it was vital that Jesus foretold his death. He didn't want us to think it was an accident. And so while he was foretelling his death, he's like, well, by the way, after I die, I'm also going to rise again. Because he didn't want us to be surprised about that either. But the ladies were surprised. These women came to the tomb expecting Jesus to be dead, and they were not the only ones who were surprised and caught off guard by all of this. In verse 8, reading on, after, after the, um, the, the angels exhort them to remember, in verse 8, they did remember. They remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven. So uh, the, the eleven men who were Jesus' disciples, and to all the rest. Judas ha, is, is gone now out of the eleven, so there's, I mean, out of the twelve, there's eleven left, and to all the rest. Verse 10, that was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. All right, we, we need to pause here again. And we need to highlight Luke's historicity. Okay? Um, 
the response of the disciples here of not believing these women is entirely consistent with everything we know about the first century. Because in the first century, the, the testimony of women was not respected. Testimony of women was not uh, allowed in a court. Uh, a first century Jewish philosopher named Philo said this, women are irrational and should not be trusted. Some people may still believe that today, may still say that. I don't, I don't, okay? I, I, didn't, I didn't say that. But so in the first century, there their testimony was not permitted. It was not respected. And so some people suggest that the early church invented this whole story of the resurrection because they needed something to kind of get people excited and to, to kind of form this whole church. Some people think that they invented this story. If you're going to invent a story, you don't do it this way. There are four gospel accounts and in every account of the resurrection, women are the first to the tomb, and then they are the ones who take the message to the other disciples. And in all four, the, 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 the disciples do not believe the women. I mean, if, if, you're, if you're trying to invent this and start a movement, uh, this is not a smart way to do it. I mean, no, nobody outside of the circle is going to believe it. Because nobody in the story believed it. Nobody believed it from the get-go. And so these disciples who did not believe that the resurrection was going to happen, um, in just a few months, in just a few years, they're, they're going to be the witnesses themselves of the resurrection. They're going to be confronting the people who put Jesus to death. So instead of cowering in their rooms, afraid that they were the next ones who were going to be crucified, they're going to be in the face of the people who put Jesus to death. And then the, the church is going to just continue to expand. And within a couple of hundred years, which in, in terms of, of ancient history is pretty fast, the, the church is going to explode to the point where it eclipses the Roman Empire. So I'm not a historian, but N.T. Wright is. And N.T. Wright looks at this and he says, you may not believe that the resurrection actually happened, but if you don't believe in the resurrection, you have to explain what happened with the church somehow. You have to have some kind of explanation for that kind of explanation. You have to have some kind of explanation for why people would go to their own deaths and become martyrs themselves for something that they knew wasn't true because they made the story up. That doesn't make any sense. And so it actually lends credibility to a story that is incredible. It's admittedly incredible. You and I have never seen someone resurrected but it adds credibility because of the way Luke tells us. Daryl Bach says this. He concludes that the, the resurrection was not created by the church. Rather, the church was created by the resurrection. And so today we see these disciples not believing. But we do, as we're closing here with this last verse, we do get a hint of what changes them and transforms them in verse 12 but Peter rose so he's heard this story from from these ladies um, and and the words verse 11 seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them but Peter rose and ran to the tomb stooping and looking in he saw the linen cloths by themselves 
and he went home marveling at what had happened. So this is Peter. So the word marveling is, is more like wondering. Like it's, this is not marveling like, oh, wow, this is awesome. It happened. It's more like I'm like, wow, what? 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 What's there? He's perplexed, just like the ladies were. What has gone on here? This is Peter, who some of you will remember a few weeks ago, we saw Peter deny that he even knew Jesus. He completely turned his back on Jesus. He, is, uh, he went out and wept bitterly. He's in the, the depths, no doubt, right now of guilt and shame over what he has, has done. And so he, he's part of this group that Luke says did not believe, but he's compelled to go and see for himself. I mean, these ladies, you know, they're, they're kooky. We don't know what they're talking about, but... I have to go and see for my, myself. And maybe some of you can relate this morning. Again, maybe you're, you're skeptical. You're like, man, maybe something happened. Something caused all this stir. But I'm not sure about that, what it really was. And if, if you're there this morning, that's okay. I get it. Um, as we close, I, I want to say a word um, about faith and belief in our postmodern world. So before um, the modern world, we had even pre-modern. We had, we had faith and, and belief was very different in the pre-modern era. In the pre-modern era, the supernatural was everything. Supernatural was everywhere. There were gods of everything. There was gods of rivers. There's gods of fertility. There's gods of sun. And so people are occupied. And there's like demons under every rock. And so you're trying to make the gods happy so that they will show favor on you. And so that was kind of the mindset of the pre-modern era. Then the modern era came along around 1400, 1500. And, and the pendulum swung from the supernatural now to the natural. And now the focus is, what can I identify through science? And the scientific method became the be-all, end-all of how can we verify things through science. And I love science, by the way. I love the fact that we have lights on here right now. A couple of weeks ago, our lights went out, and we're thankful that that didn't happen this morning. I'm thankful for medicine. I'm thankful for medicine to treat people when they have all kinds of issues. We have a member of our family on some medications right now for something that they're dealing with. I'm thankful for the advances that science has brought us. But what we learned over time by using the scientific method is that that's not the be-all, end-all. It doesn't lead us to all truth because we have fallible human beings who have lots of bias and we have faulty logic using the scientific method. So that doesn't lead us to ultimate truth either. And so then the pendulum swung again. When we got frustrated with that and disillusioned with ourselves, it swung again to postmodernism. And now we live in an age where we just say, we really can't know anything for sure. And the only thing that you can know is whatever you know, and whatever you know is okay, and whatever I know is okay, and we just do the best we can to try to sift through all of it, but we really can't know anything for sure. We really can't know anything about history because everybody was biased when they were writing it down, and so, so we really can't put our, our trust and our faith in, in anything like that. And to all of that, I would just humbly suggest to you that... Anytime a pendulum swings, it usually swings too far. I had a, had a professor that said, beware the peril of the pendulum because it usually swings too far and reality is somewhere in, in the middle. And I would suggest that the, the reality of truth 
And the reality of history is some kind of combination of the scientific method and, yes, the supernatural. We don't count that out. There really can be things that happen outside of our ability to measure them. And there's some objective truth. There, there are actually events that have happened in, in history. It's easy to dismiss the resurrection by saying this sort of thing doesn't really happen. But that's precisely the point. It's going to take a radical event to right the wrongs of this world. And I don't think we have to look too far to see the darkness and the brokenness of our world. That's not going to happen by something we can put under a microscope. It's going to take something incredible that may just be credible if we look at it carefully. See, today we connect to Jesus not through a memory that is sparked by a lifeless monument. We connect to our living Savior through his living words. His living words are recorded for us in Scripture. And if you're here this morning and you're a skeptic, I would just commend to you to, to take one of these Bibles with you, if you don't have one with you, uh, to, to take one, and to start in the Gospels, maybe even start in the Gospel of Luke, who was, gave great attention to detail, his orderly account, and just let it, let it speak to your heart and see what God might be wanting to say through those, those living words. Beyond the, the living words, there is more living that connects us to our living Savior. One, the, another is a living church. And so we've talked about that. We've talked about the idea that disciples who went from not believing that any of this was, was true to giving their lives as martyrs to now you and I, we, we sit on the other side of the planet as a result of their work and their, their witness, there's something, you have to give some kind of attention to where the church came from and what it's about with all of its flaws, okay? Far from perfect, not pretending it's, it's, uh, that we live up to what Jesus has called us to. This is, this is why we depend wholeheartedly on what he has accomplished for us because we don't accomplish it perfectly, but we seek to obey him, we seek to follow him. So we have his living words, we have a living church, and we have his living children. There, there are hundreds of people in this room that if we had time, you could get up and you could talk about what difference Christ has made in your life. How there's been transformation, how he's brought you in some area of your life from death to, to life. Those of you who were here last Sunday got to witness some baptisms. That's always a beautiful time to, to talk about dying to an old life and being risen to new life. I would encourage you, if you're a skeptic here this morning, to have a conversation with one of those living children that God has adopted into his family and, and hear their story of how God has changed them. If you're marveling and you're wondering here this morning, you're not quite sure what to make of it all, then you're, you're just like Peter. And it's, it's understandable because resurrections don't just happen every day. But if you're wondering and if you're not sure, then I want to encourage you to do what Peter did, and that is to go for yourself and examine the evidence. 
Examine the evidence of his living word. Examine the evidence of history. And if you are willing to, to take that step of examination, then you may appreciate the, the journey of a man very much like Peter, who started out not believing, but came to believe. His name is Lee Strobel. He is a, uh, a journalist, and not a journalist for some hometown paper. He's a journalist for the Chicago Tribune. He's also trained as a lawyer. He set out convinced uh, that he would disprove the resurrection and uh, in, in a little book called The Case for Easter. And I want to just read to you from his introduction because I think some of you in the room may relate to him today. He says this, From my perspective, the faith of Christians blinded them to the real facts about Jesus, and they only saw what they wanted to see in him. Certainly, he was only a legend or a mere mortal at best. In their wide-eyed gullibility, Christians sincerely believed he rose from the dead and thus proved he was the Son of God, but there was no doubt in my mind that they were sincerely wrong. They had to be. As a reporter, I had seen lots of dead people and none of them had ever come back to life. Christians could spin fanciful tales of an empty tomb, but they could never change the grim, absolute finality of death. Then the unthinkable happened. My wife became a Christian. I anticipated the worst, and yet in the ensuing months, I began to see winsome changes in her character and values. When she attributed this transformation to God, I knew it was time to use my journalism and legal training to thoroughly investigate Christianity. Maybe I could liberate her from this cult. The starting point seemed obvious to me. Clearly, the resurrection was the linchpin of the Christian faith. After all, anyone can claim to be the Son of God. But if someone could substantiate that assertion by returning to life after being certifiably dead and buried, well, that would be a compelling confirmation that he was telling the truth, even for a skeptic like me. As I began my investigation, three questions loomed. Was Jesus really dead after his ordeal on the cross? Was his tomb actually empty on that first Easter morning? And did credible people subsequently encounter him? If these questions have ever intrigued you, then join me as I retrace and expand upon the journey that unexpectedly ended up shaking my spiritual cynicism to its core. If you are interested in taking that journey and, and reading about his investigation, then I want to encourage you to stop by on your way out, stop by our Welcome Center, or stop by uh, as you're leaving out this back door. And um, we, we actually, we offered these first service, and they're all gone. So everybody jumped on them. Uh, so we don't have any to put in your hand. But um, if you will leave us your, um, your name and your address, we will send you one of those books uh, th this week and get it into your hands. So that for, for those of you who are skeptics, you can investigate the evidence that there is and the living words of, of Christ. Or if you are a Christ follower, you may need to bolster your faith so that you know how to answer that question when it comes to you. Because we, we do serve a living Savior who has left us his living words. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for your amazing plan. Thank you that in Christ, in his death, you worked the greatest possible good for humankind by pouring out all of the penalty for sin onto this perfect, spotless sacrifice so that those of us who are full of spots and full of blemishes could place our faith in him and have him wash us clean. Thank you for working that amazing exchange on our behalf, doing something for us that we could never do for ourselves. And Father, uh, this morning I pray for the person who is struggling to believe history. I, all of us today question all of history and what, do, what can we know about anything? Lord, I, I don't pretend that I can argue anyone or rationalize anyone into these things, but Lord, I, I ask that your spirit would guide and lead the heart this morning that sincerely uh, wants, wants to know and is open to the, the truth to hear from you. Lord, would you meet them right there, speak to their hearts, lead them on this journey to a living Savior who we celebrate today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.